2: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales,
3: Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Millions of people across this country and around the world this weekend are mourning the death of Muhammad Ali. Half a century ago, he dubbed himself the greatest. And few are those today who would disagree. We'll be devoting a good deal of our broadcast to Ali's life and legacy, beginning with Jim Axelrod in our Sunday morning cover story yes he was
1: not just a sports icon but a cultural one and while his poor health has kept him out of the spotlight for years making sense of muhammad ali's death is something quite different
4: he'll never die and i don't think he'll ever die as long as his pictures and his memory exist
1: just ahead this sunday morning remembering muhammad ali
3: in any field of human endeavor, peak performance requires determination. And peak performance is what mountain climbing is all about. Lee Cohen will introduce us to a man literally sitting on top of the world.
5: Drops off a thousand feet or so below there, so I'm actually a little legit scared. I'm not going to lie to you guys.
6: For anyone who thinks the days of the rugged explorer are gone, think again. I'm on the summit of Mount Everest! No words can describe. The man who's been to the ends of the Earth... Summit of Mount Vincent! Woo!
3: ...and the tops of it, ahead
6: on Sunday morning.
3: The coming attraction on the summer screen, starring Matthew McConaughey, tells a little-known story of the Civil War. Michelle Miller will offer us a preview.
7: Depending on whom you ask, Confederate soldier Newton Knight was either hero or traitor.
8: He provided food to destitute people. He rescued children who were in slavery. I used the term trailer trash to describe him.
7: But for actor Matthew McConaughey, Knight's conscience was indisputable.
9: Bible in the barrel of a shotgun. That was his justice.
7: The man and the myths later on Sunday morning.
3: A standing ovation is in order on the occasion of Carnegie Hall's 125th anniversary. Now, Mo Rocca is just the man to lead it.
10: How do you know you've made it? Your debut at Carnegie Hall. When you've played Carnegie Hall. Everything we play here takes another dimension.
11: I love the sound. 125 years after opening night, we'll ask the tough questions.
12: You're not going to ask me that, are
11: you? Yeah, I have to ask you, where does it come from? The joke. We'll get to Carnegie Hall later this Sunday morning.
3: Tracy Smith will take us to the opening of a Museum of Broken Relationships in Los Angeles. With Steve Hartman, we'll listen to a singular symphony of survival.
13: Next, I must be the greatest. Remembering the greatest, Muhammad Ali. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Boxer, civil rights activist, Vietnam War dissenter, religious convert, Muhammad Ali will always be remembered by the title he bestowed on himself the greatest i uh, remember, this is from Jim Axelrod. I must
1: be the greatest! He was the boldest of our bold-faced names. I am the
2: king of the world! Hold it, hold it, hold I'm it. Pretty. Hold it, you're not
14: that pretty. I'm a bad man!
1: But as audaciously self-confident as Muhammad Ali was... I cut records, I sing, I can fight, I can do anything. That's why I say I am the greatest. That's the name of the album, I am the greatest. You can't really argue his point. Not as we consider the life of the greatest. I'm gonna float like a butterfly and sing like a bee. His hands
12: can't hit what his eyes can't see.
1: The brash 18-year-old from Louisville named Cassius Clay, who won a gold medal at the Rome Olympics in 1960, just three months out of high school, flipped a switch on our culture four years later in Miami and Beach.
15: The, right hand, the best fight so far!
1: Who would have dreamed when they came to the fight that they would witness the launching of a human satellite? Shocking the boxing world by dethroning Sonny Liston as heavyweight champ. Who's the greatest? You Cassius Clay had gone into the ring. Assalamu <laughs> Alaikum. <laughs> Muhammad Ali In the whole came out.
8: Of all- Cassius Clay is a name no more, is that right?
1: Yes, sir. It's Muhammad Ali. Muhammad means worthy of all praises, and Ali means most high. He held the heavyweight title three more years, until 1967, when he refused to be drafted into the Army during the Vietnam War citing his status as a conscientious objector.
3: Reverend King, do you share the same concern uh, that that, uh, Muhammad has for his draft status?
16: Oh, I certainly do. My my views on the draft are clear. I'm against it.
1: He was stripped of his title and convicted of draft evasion. I'm not allowed to fight in America. I'm not allowed to leave America. And I've been completely uh, persecuted before prosecuted. He lost three and a half prime years of his career. The Supreme Court would ultimately overturn his draft evasion conviction.
17: The former heavyweight champion said he was fully prepared to end his career and go to jail had the decision gone the other way. He said he did not worry about
1: that decision because he was sincere in his religious beliefs, and if that meant going to jail, then it was the will of Allah. And the Ali, who climbed back into the ring in October of 1970, was now not just a sports hero, but a cultural one at least to many who had never seen an athlete take a stand like this. Journalist Robert Lipsight covered him for 52 years.
4: He made people brave. He gave people courage, whether it was black kids in the 60s who saw somebody standing up for principle, whether it was anti-war protesters who saw the heavyweight champion of the world. At a time when that was Mr. Man, it meant
1: something. He would lose the fight of the century for the heavyweight title to Joe Frazier at Madison Square Garden. But three years and several more bruising fights later, Ali regained the title using his rope-a-dope to knock out George Foreman in Zaire in 1974. You could go through all the fights of Muhammad Ali's career. Losing, then winning the title for a third time from Leon Spinks, for instance. You all thought it was gone, didn't you? But you still have me to reckon with. But that would miss the larger meaning of Muhammad Ali's life. At 42, a few years into retirement, Ali was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease.
4: So maybe when we get up there, we can sit you down in a chair
1: and you can talk. No problem. In this interview with Ed Bradley on 60 Minutes, it is clear just how hard it had become for Ali to walk, and even harder to speak.
16: You can't talk. Now I know you can talk. You talked to me. You talked to Lonnie. You talked to Howard. Ali walked away, he told
1: Ed later, because he did not want to be pitied.
4: Can you imagine, you know, the, the gods striking down the most mobile? and garrulous person on the planet. I wonder what was going on inside his mind and his soul.
1: This was Ali at the Atlanta Olympics.
4: I cried in 96 when he lit the Olympic torch. What were those tears about? About who he once was, about the hope that he had given us, about this beautiful creature who really kind of epitomized the mortality of all of us.
1: Yes, his fierceness and determination had allowed him to define himself right down to his name. As Muhammad Ali once said, it's not bragging if you can back it up. (laughs) But it was not without a price. I'm just wondering how you are processing the fact that he's gone.
4: Well, he's not gone for me. He'll never die. And I don't think he'll ever die as long as his pictures and his memory
1: exist. Ali may have been the first to call himself the greatest, but it didn't take long for so many of us to join him.
4: When we needed it at this turbulent time in our lives, in
3: American life, he was the greatest. He was there for us. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. One of many expressions that turned a kid from Louisville, Kentucky into a global sensation. Anna Werner looks at Muhammad Ali, wordsmith.
14: This poem tells Hadfield to be as great as me.
18: <laughs> this is it,
1: the greatest short poem of all time. Me,
18: wee! <laughs> Muhammad Ali, still known as Cassius Clay at the time, Wowed the audience at the Steve Allen Show with that bit of rhyme back in 1963, ahead of his first bout with Sonny Liston.
12: Uh, young man there with a the red sweater. How about reciting
1: one
19: of your poems, Cassius? If you like to lose your money, be a fool and bet on Sonny. <laughs> he had an amazing flair for words. Anybody could see that.
18: Author Jonathan Eig is writing a biography of Ali. He says the man known for his verbal dexterity actually was dyslexic. What kind of education did Muhammad Ali have?
19: Ali was not a great student. In fact, a lot of the teachers at Central High School thought he should not have been given a diploma because he missed so many classes and he took a lot of time off to compete in boxing tournaments. But they decided to give him the diploma anyway. And the principal made, a, made an argument that uh, they didn't want to be remembered as the, as the people who flunked the heavyweight champion.
18: In a CBS interview 10 years ago, Ali's wife Lonnie revealed how the champ overcame his reading difficulties.
15: Muhammad, as a way of compensating, would memorize everything.
7: And that's why he knows poetry so well.
1: Ali fights great.
19: He's got speed and endurance. If you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. (laughs) It's funny because a lot of my my favorite Ali poems, it turns out he didn't write.
20: Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee.
19: You know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Uh, That came from Bundini Brown. Bundini Brown was one of Ali's cornermen, and and Bundini actually... uh, trademarked that phrase.
18: Right now, uh, but there was no question that Ali knew how to use his talents. I am the man
3: all over the land, and if you don't believe it, just interfere with my plan.
19: He was like, a, like an actor or a comedian. He knew which lines would get the laughs, which lines would sting. And when he found one, he stuck to it, and he, and he, and he used it to very effectively, almost like he used that, that big jab.
2: A wise man can act a fool, but a fool
1: cannot act a wise man.
18: And his wife Lonnie said in that interview years ago that Ali kept it all in perspective. As Muhammad said, I never said I was the smartest, I said I was the greatest.
3: Coming up. I'm on the summit of Mount Everest. Climb every mountain. And we got tickets to Carnegie Hall.
13: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Benny Goodman earned himself a standing ovation in 1961 in his performance at New York's Carnegie Hall. He and his bands are among the countless great musicians who have appeared on that famous stage during its 125-year history.
16: With Mo Rocca, we're about to hit the big time. So Mo, here you are, your debut at Carnegie Hall, 2,800 cheering people. and This is what it feels like coming into this extraordinary
10: space. Every performance I've done here is something memorable for me. I treasure them as the highest of my career.
21: That was the dream. It was the equivalent of pitching for the Yankees.
11: What's special about this hall? The ghosts. There are 125 years of ghosts at Carnegie Hall. The legendary concert hall in Midtown Manhattan. There'll be no
10: Mozart tonight.
11: And it's archivist, Gino Francesconi, can tell you about pretty much everyone who's played this stage.
12: Look at the size of this ticket. It's Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett. They did a big show. Well, with that talent, you need a big ticket. This is one of benny goodman's clarinets that was given to us by the family this is a very significant piece why when benny goodman came here in 1938 it was the first time people sat and listened to jazz you used to dance to it george gershwin you have toscanini's baton
11: toscanini's baton
12: isn't it amazing and in fact the tip is broken he used to get mad and
11: break the tips and throw the sticks mm. so you're a little bit of a diva yeah a little bit in the old ledgers here's booking here's managers kept because... perfect track of the performers January, well almost Australia. perfect
12: February 12th 1964 we had the Beatles she thought they were a folk group and she wasn't even sure how to spell them and B- she, E-E. E-E.
11: the way it looks right here Is this what people would have seen 125 years ago? Absolutely. Clive Gillinson is the executive and artistic director of Carnegie Hall. It was built by Andrew Carnegie, one of the wealthiest men of the 19th century.
16: The idea didn't come to Andrew Carnegie himself. It came from his wife. His wife sang in a chorus. And so, as you do, she said to her husband, could you build us a concert hall? It didn't start saying... New York needs a great concert hall, how do we build it? It was more about making his wife happy. And he transformed music forever. The
11: chorus that Louise Carnegie sang in? The Oratorio Society of New York, which performs in Carnegie Hall to this day. (laughs) Carnegie commissioned William Tuthill to design the hall, even though Tuthill lacked what would seem to be an important qualification.
16: The architect had never before built a concert hall. It's incomprehensible, almost. He knew nothing about it. Andrew Carnegie sends him to Europe to look at the greatest concert halls. He comes back and designs something that bears no relationship. So this guy must have had such an instinct and an understanding of sound. And when you look at the shape, in some ways it is reminiscent of the beauty and the curve of a violin or a cello. Everybody looked to Europe in those days. So the assumption was you copy the best in Europe, but he didn't. So Europe was probably thinking top this, and he did. Absolutely. This is the very
12: first ticket that was printed for opening night.
11: For that first concert, May 5th, 1891, Carnegie brought in, direct from Russia, none other than the great composer and conductor, Tchaikovsky. The musicians have been singing the praises of the Hall's acoustics
10: ever since. Everything we play here takes another dimension. Yannick Nézé-Ségan is the musical director of the
11: Philadelphia Orchestra and the newly named musical director of New York's Metropolitan Opera.
10: Whether it's more intimate repertoire, there's an aura or a halo around it. It has a glow which makes it still intimate but with a broader radiance. When it's a bigger repertoire, a lot of people on stage... There's an extra clarity. We can hear each other on stage better than any other place.
11: Lori Anderson has played Carnegie Hall 17 times. The feeling that the audience is in a bowl, and that's a very nice feeling. I definitely feel like they're going, oh, like that. Musicians not only remember when they played Carnegie Hall, they have lifelong memories of the people they heard there.
21: I was in front of the hall from Friday evening to Monday morning.
11: You waited for days. I waited for for days. As a 15-year-old. To
21: get tickets. In
11: 1965, pianist Emmanuel Axe camped on the sidewalk outside Carnegie Hall to see Vladimir Horowitz.
21: I listen every once in a while to the recording of that concert. It's just as amazing now as it was then. It really was an incredible, incredible concert. And you can listen to that, and
11: you must think I was there. Oh, yeah, yeah.
21: One of my favorite shows here was uh, Nina Simone.
11: Debbie Harry remembers not only whom she saw, but whom she didn't see.
4: One of the times that I tried to crash in here as a groupie was when David was playing.
11: When David Bowie was playing.
18: (laughs) We tried to get in, and we got absolutely nowhere. (laughs) But not just
11: musicians like the great Van Cliburn have played Carnegie Hall. The biggest names of the day period have headlined here. Teddy Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, Lenny Bruce. This is Booker T. Washington. What's
12: extraordinary is right behind him is Mark Twain. This was a benefit to help raise funds for Tuskegee Institute in
11: 1906. Notice behind Mark Twain, You see black and white man sitting almost alternating there. Absolutely. Carnegie Hall had integrated audiences from the beginning? From the very beginning. You're the archivist. Francesconi has spent a lot of time trying to run down one bit of Carnegie Hall lore. You're not going to ask
12: me
10: that, are you?
11: Yeah, I have to ask you, where does it come from? The joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. How do you get to Carnegie Hall?
10: We do practice, practice, practice.
12: And more. The closest I came was to a, a violinist by the name of Misha Elman. He had a bad rehearsal, and he was going out through the backstage door, head down, violin case in hand, and two tourists saw him, and they said, can you tell us how to get to Carnegie Hall? And without looking up, he just said, practice. Wow!
11: So a terrific um, joke born of bitterness. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yes! When I asked Emmanuel Axe about the joke, he I struck a different note.
21: There are several versions of it, only one of which is clean.
11: Really? Of course. Can you tell? Well, bleep it.
21: The famous one is that the guy says to the New Yorker, how do I get to Carnegie Hall, or should I just go f*** myself?
11: Whether Andrew Carnegie would be shocked by that punchline, who can say. But no doubt he'd be surprised by his hall's place in history 125 years later. What would he have made of the concert we saw there recently? A tribute to David Bowie, culminating with the audience singing about an astronaut lost in space. and And you know what? It sounded pretty good.
3: Some of us see mountains as scenery, others as a challenge. And then there's Colin O'Brady, whose peak performance has a special place in the history books, as Lee Cowan now explains. I'm going up there. Soon, soon.
6: Yeah. Battling your way to the tallest place on Earth is an accomplishment for anyone. I'm on the summit of Mount Everest. No words can describe. But Mount Everest was only a 29,000 foot pit stop for climber Colin O'Brady, whose trip here to the top of the world. Stepping off the plane. Actually started at the bottom of it. Wow. Almost five months ago. We made it, we made it, we made it. That's Colin at the South Pole, He trekked there some 69 frigid miles, all on foot. Weeks later, he was doing the same thing at the North Pole, climbing over ice ridges and dodging polar bear tracks along the way.
10: North Pole! North
0: Pole!
6: Now, it's a fair question to ask why. The answer? Colin was in search of an adventure called the Explorer's Grand Slam. Tired legs, tired body. It's a grueling test of endurance, requiring not only reaching both poles, but also the summits of the tallest mountain on every continent. That's seven in all. Summit of Mount Vincent, woo! Fewer than 50 people have ever finished the challenge. Only two have done it in under a year. But just nine days ago, high atop Mount Denali in Alaska, Colin O'Brady, Made history. Woo! He had finished all nine expeditions in just 139 days. At the age of 31, he had broken the world record. Has it sunk in yet? Or
5: no, <laughs> I don't think it's fair to say it's sunk in yet. I've even barely even gotten one full night's sleep
6: yet, so uh, I think it'll take some time. We met up with Colin as soon up, as he was I back managed. down so the mountain, still in a uh, daze sunshine. over what he had just done. You were pretty sure you could do this. You weren't sure you could break the record, but you're pretty sure you could at least accomplish all nine Th- feats, right?
5: Physically, I thought it was very capable, but there was a lot of things that had to go our way. Won't be too long, hopefully we'll be standing up there.
6: Uh, gotta work Sometimes breath, but, uh, mountains push yeah, back. With Everest, so it can be more up. like a shove.
5: Looking at all the various tombs and memorials to people
6: who have passed away here on Everest. and The danger was readily Definitely. evident to Colin. At least six climbers died this year alone trying to make the summit. Colin himself barely made it. High winds forced him to abandon his first attempt. But he managed to summon the energy for one last push to the top.
5: I'd be lying to say if I didn't have doubts throughout this project. There's many times when the weather or just the loneliness or the tiredness, the fatigue really just hits so hard that you could wonder, can I go tomorrow?
6: We've climbed more than 10,000 feet today. But every tomorrow had its own challenge, and every mountain, its own clock.
5: We've been going for about seven hours, 20 minutes.
6: He raced up Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa in less than 12 hours. Woo! Woo! only to arrive at the summit in the pitch dark.
5: Jason, my friend.
6: How long does it take a normal person to, to get to Kilimanjaro?
5: <laughs> Normally, Kilimanjaro is climbing in about a week, six or seven days. And you did it in less than 12 hours? Yeah, just under 12 hours from the, the beginning to the summit. Yeah,
6: yeah, it was a big push.
20: Get on the highway.
6: Colin's adventure started way back on Christmas Day. Uh, happy day. It was a little bit of a sad day. Yeah, a little bit of a sad day. That's Jenna Bisa, a fellow mountain climber, driving him to the airport. Oh, and she's also Colin's fiance. Where did he propose?
20: Colin proposed on the top of the third tallest mountain in Ecuador. Of course he did. Of course he did. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he did. He made me work for it.
5: 4,800 meters. Feeling pretty good.
6: They dubbed their operation Beyond 7-2. Seven summits, two poles. Colin climbed. Jenna
20: planned. Call Qatar Airlines and make sure that we can adjust that flight. Hi. Hi. Oh, man, it's so good to see you.
6: Jenna was his rock or at least she tried to be.
5: Miss you like crazy.
20: You know, please be safe out there, Colin.
6: Do you have those moments, though, of doubt?
20: Of course. Of course I do. So my high school sweetheart passed away um, when I was 17. And to take on this project with Colin...
5: Drops off a thousand feet or so below there, so... I'm actually a little legit scared. I'm not going to lie to you guys.
20: And know that he's potentially in harm's way. It's terrifying, oh, oh. but I have to believe that we have controlled what we can control and that the risks are being managed very carefully, but the fear is real. The fear is really real.
5: Just crossed that. Heart is pounding, but it's
6: pretty awesome. Colin always had a love of adventure, a thirst to experience everything, but while on a trip to Thailand back in 2008, he made a mistake he got in on a popular beach party trick, a game of jump rope. Only the rope was dipped in kerosene and lit on fire. And it wrapped around
5: my, my legs and had excess kerosene sprayed me to my neck and let me he keep just burst in it into fire. In yeah, threw the rope off me and dove into the ocean to put out the flames. But
6: it wasn't in time.
5: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, 25% of my body was severely burned, mostly basically mid-thigh down, both of my feet. The pain he endured
6: through his recovery, he says, taught him something about himself. Pushing his body to its limits gave him a sense of accomplishment like nothing else. So much so, Colin became a professional triathlete. But even that wasn't enough.
5: Just got to a point where this is great, but I would like to do more. It's been taking a lot of effort and work to set this goal and to do that.
6: So he and Jenna began touring elementary schools near their home in Portland, Oregon, telling kids about the fire and the power of setting goals, even seemingly impossible ones like completing the Explorer's Grand Slam. They ate it up.
20: We don't really know him, but we
7: really want him to make it.
16: If he makes it, he will say that anything's possible. Yeah, possible. You can do anything even
20: if you've gone through a lot.
6: No matter how hard it is.
20: Yeah. Cuz that is really hard.
6: I'm pretty tired. Just how hard was written on Colin's face when he finally finished on Denali. A combination of relief, exhaustion, and exhilaration. Hey. The first thing he did was call Jenna.
20: We made it. <laughs>
6: She boarded a plane and flew straight to the glacier to meet him. Oh my gosh, you guys. To celebrate not one record, (laughs) but two. We did it.
20: I can't believe it.
6: It Turns out Colin has not only broken the Grand Slam record, Mm. but in the process, he's also broken the Seven Summit speed record, too.
5: I hope that people take away from this the power of the human spirit. When you believe in yourself and you dream big, that anything is possible.
6: Why do we climb these mountains? The answer for some is because they are there. Well, this is one of the reasons for sure. To see what's on the other side. We're calling (sighs) O'Brady. The answer is simply because he believed he could.
13: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Muhammad Ali first achieved fame as a price fighter in the ring. He went on to show his mettle as a fighter in the wider world. Here's CBS News special correspondent James Brown.
14: As the world mourns the passing of Muhammad Ali, I can't help but think of all the athletes I've spoken with over the years who simply revere the man known as the greatest. Before Ali became an international icon, he was first and foremost a sportsman a heavyweight boxer who possessed incomparable speed, agility, and with a mouth to match.
10: I'm a bad man! I took up the world!
14: He bragged about what he could do in the ring, but it was his willingness to speak truth to power that made him so influential to generations of athletes who followed him. By coincidence, Ali died on the eve of the 49th anniversary of what has become known as the Ali Summit. On June 4, 1967, Ali was a 25-year-old champion who had shocked the world by beating the likes of Sonny Liston and Floyd Patterson. But he also shocked America when he opted out of the draft for the Vietnam War because of his religious convictions as a Muslim. Ali immediately was reviled for his stance. In an effort to find out whether the young boxer was sincere, another great, Jim Brown, organized a meeting in Cleveland with Ali and several prominent athletes. Among them were Bill Russell and a 20-year-old Lou Alcindor, who later would change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Many of these athletes had served in the military and thought they could change Ali's mind. But after several hours of debate, the young champion actually changed their minds. NFL Hall of Famer Bobby Mitchell was there and said of Ali, quote, he convinced us that he knew exactly what he was doing, that it was important to him. So the group held a press conference and came out in support of Muhammad Ali. And the picture is truly worth a thousand words. Sitting next to some of the greatest athletes of all time is the man who would eventually be known as the greatest of them all. He would still be stripped of his title later that year and have to wait another three years to fight again. But that press conference began to turn the tide of public opinion For the man who would become a transformational figure in the world of sports. He convinced them back then, and he convinced us all that to be great means to be courageous. As he once said, quote, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it.
3: From time to time this summer, we'll be attending the opening of some exhibit that piques our interest. Tracy Smith starts us off at a show all about the search for closure.
15: In Hollywood, heartbreak has always been easy to find, and now it has an address. It's the Museum of Broken Relationships. Think of it as emotion under glass. A hundred or so ordinary objects that mean absolutely nothing to you and me, and everything to the people who gave them up. There's the blue silk blouse a woman wore the day her husband left her. The wedding cake topper someone kept after their marriage fizzled. A dried out prom corsage from a long lost love. The butterfly wings a guy made for his fiance's Halloween costume before she cheated on him and fluttered away. Okay, I don't know about you, but when I was spectacularly dumped by my college boyfriend, the last thing that I wanted to do was save a little something to remember that moment by. But a lot of people do, like this woman who was divorced but couldn't bear to throw away her silk floral wedding dress. So she kept it and crammed it in a pickle jar. The man behind all this is L.A. attorney John Quinn who discovered the original museum in Zagreb, Croatia, a little over a year ago, a place with its own collection of relationship rubble.
8: We all came out of it thinking that was extraordinary. It's very thought provoking, very moving in a way. And I thought more people should see this.
15: And now they can at $18 a head. Love notes, big, small, and very small. The cheerleader outfit one woman bought because her ex was a Nebraska fan, and the silicone implants another had removed after she dumped the guy who talked her into getting them. It can be a little sad, but the people we met seem to be taking it remarkably well.
20: It's amazing, I love it. It's, it's, it's just wonderfully cathartic to see people shedding the memories of their breakup and moving on and letting go, but la- allowing other people to share in what happened. Have
15: you had a broken heart? Oh yeah. Alexis Hyde is the museum's director.
20: So, bottom line, can you find beauty
15: in a breakup? I think so. Hopefully, you know, you can look back and think fondly and know that even if it didn't work out, it contributed to who you are today. And we're all failing together, and we're all trying to get back up together. And that, I think, is very...
20: We were just reading one that we think might be one of his ex-girlfriends. Well, this is a
5: little embarrassing because I've seen three so far that describe my last
7: three relationships to a team.
15: That's a pretty common reaction. The museum already has enough material to change the displays every few months. But like love itself, there's always room for more.
20: So this is very weird for us because we hope we don't end up in here.
22: But we easily
15: could. (laughs) Really?
3: Coming up, Symphony of Survival.
13: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Steve Hartman this morning takes us to a symphony of survival performed by an orchestra of one. For years, people
8: who live in this Chicago apartment building have heard the music. Heard what everyone assumed was someone seducing a song out of a baby grand with two remarkable hands. But now we know that was only half right. 78-year-old Norman Malone first fell in love with the piano at the age of five, back when he could use both hands back when a career as a professional pianist wasn't out of the
12: question. And then, you know, my accident, uh, injury at the age of 10. What, you call it an accident? Well, for lack of a
8: better word. Attempted murder is closer to the truth.
12: Yeah. My mother and father.
8: His dad was a very violent man. Yes. So scary, sometimes Mrs. Malone would ask Norman to stay up late to protect the family. But Norman was just a kid. And one night, he was just too tired. I was supposed to stay awake. um... To make sure your dad didn't hurt anybody? Yeah. Yeah, I fell asleep. Next thing Norman knew, he was in a hospital. Next to his brothers, all three of them bludgeoned with a hammer, all three of them partially paralyzed. And for Norman, that was the biggest blow. Not having use of that right hand meant not playing the piano anymore.
4: Kept trying to figure out, how do you play now?
8: Until he learned there are actually scores of scores written specifically for the left hand. And for more than 60 years now, he's been practicing them in private. A lot of people when they have a special gift, they like to show it off.
12: Well, I thought I was doing that with my students.
8: After the attack, Norman went on to become a high school choral instructor, one of the best in the city, according to the former students we assembled.
7: Yeah, he was a great teacher.
8: I think that he maybe lived his life through his students. In fact, not even they knew how good he was, until recently, when one of Norman's neighbors outed him to the jazz critic at the local newspaper, which led to this. Norman's first public concert, a symphony of survival. It ended with a standing ovation, 70 years in the making. And as for what this moment meant to him, like his music all those years, he kept that to himself.
3: Still to come,
1: we
9: declare the land north of the Pascagoula
17: Swamps to be a free state of Jones.
3: Matthew McConaughey makes a little history.
17: This is everything in the works. No,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
17: there's
22: more. And
17: yeah, all over there oh, and there. Author James Patterson. These are just the big books. Talk about a body of work.
22: For
15: years.
17: Guess
9: was going to Mexico looking for a hot
15: date, huh? It's you Sunday said, morning on CBS, and, and here things. again is oh, Charles Osgood.
3: Actor Matthew McConaughey won himself an Oscar for that performance in the 2013 movie Dallas Buyers Club. Now, a new movie stars McConaughey in another role based on a historical figure, a figure Michelle Miller tells us, who is still controversial a century and a half later.
7: Mississippi author William Faulkner once wrote, "The past is never dead; it isn't even the past." And when it comes to the American Civil War, 151 years after the South's defeat, the past remains both a painful memory and an ongoing cause for debate.
12: Hold on. Okay,
22: am I gonna
12: die? Oh, you gonna die?
9: I'm off it.
7: In the new film Free State of Jones, Matthew McConaughey plays Confederate soldier Newton Knight.
9: The deeds of the story, the context of that time, will be very relevant to today.
7: Depending on who you ask, Newton Knight was either hero or traitor.
15: You know they shoot deserters, don't you?
9: Well, they shoot everybody around here anyway. Don't seem to make no difference where the bullet comes from.
7: Knight was a poor white farmer from Mississippi who in 1863 abandoned the Southern cause and spent the rest of his life fighting oppression.
9: Do you think they're taking 10% from that plantation on over in Natchez? No. Huh? You think they're taking 10% from him? No. I I think his DNA was sort of written in the Bible and the Declaration of Independence. I mean, here's a guy who believed there were no kings on earth above him. There was one king, and that's God. And so his faith trumped the, the, the dominant values of society at that time. Mr. Moses, what are
3: you? Free man, Captain. Why's that? Because you cannot own a child of God.
23: No, you cannot, can you? I knew nothing about him, and I didn't know that much about the Civil War, and I really didn't know much about Reconstruction.
7: The film has been a near decade-long passion project for director Gary Ross who's made such blockbusters as Big, Seabiscuit, and The Hunger Games.
23: When you get disconnected from your history, you don't know where you come from. You don't understand that the struggle for freedom is an ongoing one. But these folks got plantations from here to the Mississippi.
7: Knight risked his life deserting the Confederacy after he realized the fight wasn't his. You, me, all of us, we're all out there dying so they can
9: stay rich.
23: If you owned 20 slaves, you were exempted from the draft. But poor folks who owned no slaves had to go and fight and die so you could keep owning slaves and get richer.
9: You own any slaves, what?
23: This was people yeah, that were
9: divided by race instead of united by class. The yeoman farmer that Newt and his friends were had much more in common with the African-American at that time than they did with the plantation owner. All right, everybody listen up here.
7: His army of deserters and runaway slaves took control of Jones County, Mississippi, declaring it a free state, aligned with neither the South nor the North.
9: In this day forward, we declare the land north of the Pascagoula swamps to be a free state of Jones.
7: What does a new story do to that white male southerner stereotype?
8: Well, it does a lot to discredit the myth of the lost cause. Some people would try to convey this notion that the South was monolithic. In other words, all the white people, you know, rallied around to defend the cause of the Confederacy. Mississippi...
7: Wyatt Moulds teaches history at Jones County Junior College. He's also Newt Knight's distant cousin. For Moulds, Knight was a man ahead of his time.
8: Provided food to destitute people. He rescued children who were in slavery. You know, he was known as the Robin Hood of the Piney Woods. John
14: Brown lies in the grave. John
7: Even Brown after the war, in the period grave. known as Reconstruction, Knight is said to have helped free blacks vote it's for the first time.
23: These men hit a vote.
7: And helped them survive a reign of terror under the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs>
23: It would have been so easy for Newton Knight, when the war was over, to do what a lot of other white people did and say, "Okay, that's resolved, war is over, I'm not going to continue uh, to fight the injustices that I see around me. But he didn't do that. But not everyone sees
7: Knight as the hero. Instead, they see Hollywood meddling with history. What is your chief complaint about this movie?
3: Well, I hadn't seen it, don't know anything about it. But anything that comes out of Hollywood can't be good.
7: Carl Ford is a Jones County bankruptcy lawyer. John Cox, a self-described amateur historian. They are both members of the Rosinheels, a chapter of the Sons of Confederate Veterans.
8: I use the term trailer trash to describe him.
7: So you take issue with... This whole Robin Hood to help African Americans, to help the poor farmer,
8: no proof? Cut from whole cloth. It it just didn't exist. It's out of the It's a wonderful story, and it's a story that myths are made of.
7: (laughs) To be certain, the film takes several historic liberties. But director Gary Ross says Knight's story helps dispel a lingering myth about the war.
23: People can confuse the Civil War for themselves. It was pretty simple. I'll say it. Civil War was about slavery. Okay, a lot of people want to pretend it was about other stuff. It was about states' rights, it was about free soil, it was about no. Civil War was fought over whether or not human beings should or could be owned.
15: Who is
7: this? A nightale. If history in Jones County is confusing, family is even more so. Newt Knight had several families, his first with a white wife. Is second with a former slave named Rachel. Would you say people tried to outright deny Newt's family history, his family tree? Hell oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah.
15: Yes. Some still do. do. Mm-hmm.
7: Dorothy Knight Marsh and Florence Knight Blaylock are Newt and Rachel's great granddaughters.
15: You still got the one drop rule in Mississippi. One drop. So no matter how white you are, how straight your hair is, if you got one drop of black blood, and you're considered black in the state of Mississippi. That one drop
7: meant some members of the Knight family were persecuted under Jim Crow laws, legal segregation. Is, is this legacy ever a burden?
15: No. no. We're proud of our legacy. We really are, you know. We're proud of this coming out. In Newt's final act of defiance,
7: he chose to be buried next to Rachel in this graveyard black and white together, against Mississippi law.
9: There's a great power as an actor. You understand who you are, who who you're portraying, um,
23: and there's a clarity of that.
7: Knight's headstone reads, he lived for others.
23: Everybody talks about heritage around here. There's a wonderful piece of heritage they can cling to that there was a man who had the guts to stand up to the Confederacy and fight against it, and that's a beautiful piece of Southern heritage, I think, they can turn to. Ahead, we get the word from
3: author James
17: Patterson. Thank God I don't work on a computer, because then I'd really be prolific.
13: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Before Zoo was a TV series here on CBS, it was a novel from the prolific pen, actually make that pencil, of author James Patterson. Here with the fine print is Anthony Mason.
17: This is the inner sanctum. Yeah, this is where whatever happens, happens. I'm not (laughs) sure what to make of it myself sometimes.
22: The best-selling author on the planet works out of this office in his home in Palm Beach, Florida, overlooking the Atlantic.
17: I kind of work here, and then I'll work there as well, and then also in the back room.
22: This is headquarters for the publishing empire the New York Times called James Patterson, Inc., the creative roost of a writer who's produced 73 number one bestsellers and sold 325 million books. You want to explain this for me? Uh, (laughs) Yes, I
17: write with a pencil. I just can't believe you produce all this not on a computer yeah well that's thank god i don't work on a computer because then i'd really be prolific
22: (laughs) the words writer's block aren't in patterson's vocabulary with a team of co-writers he puts out the alex cross mysteries the women's murder club michael bennett and maximum ride series and his shelves are lined with dozens of other novels in progress this is everything in the works no <laughs> <laughs> there's more now all over there
17: oh. and there these are just the big books here's the real crazy thing
22: in launching Two, a new series of short seven, novels called Bookshots,
17: these are all bookshots. every one of these tabs is a different book
22: Patterson's and had a creative explosion gorgeous. more like a volcanic Peeps. eruption how many of these are there <laughs> this many <laughs> <laughs> you're involved in some way in every single one of these? Not in some way.
17: Yeah, 80% of them, I did the outline. His aim, to transform the book business. This is a little bit of a revolution. Book shots, a reading revolution, and we, we have all this stuff crushing down on us. Yes. And, and unfortunately for a lot of people, one of those things started to become books that were just too long for them to deal with.
22: 23 titles will be released this year. Under 150
0: pages. Oof. Under $5, impossible to stop reading.
17: They are very, very fast-paced.
22: Good book, huh?
17: They're like reading a movie.
22: The son of an insurance salesman and a teacher, Jim Patterson was valedictorian of his high school class, but he wasn't much of a reader. When did you actually start writing?
17: I worked my way through college at a mental hospital up in Belmont, Massachusetts, and I worked a lot, and I just started scribbling stories.
22: In 1976, at age 29, he finished his first novel, The Thomas Berryman Number.
17: And it was turned down by 31 publishers. Mm-hmm. It then won an Edgar as the best first mystery. Right. What did you
22: think when you were getting 31 rejections?
17: It happened fairly quickly, so it wasn't, <laughs> you know, it was like death of a thousand cuts. And, um, but, but the cuts came really
22: fast. Little Brown finally published it. But sales of his early books were slow. It took you a while to really catch on.
17: Yeah. Why? Uh, Things happened along the way. I was with a woman
22: who got very sick with cancer. Her name was Jane Blanchard. They'd been a couple for six years. You two were just walking down the street here in New York? Well, actually, we were in the post office on Broadway, and Jane just collapsed. It was a brain tumor? It
17: was a brain tumor. And uh, you know, for the next two and a half years, she was dying. Was that the toughest thing you've been through? Yeah. Yeah, that was devastating. I mean, when you're madly in love with somebody mm-hmm. and they're young and they're dying, they're not good. How long did it take you to get over that? It, the weird thing was I was very close to my grandfather and when he died, I could not cry. And I was like, you're wanting to and you can't. When Jane got sick, I cried every single day. So, you know, it took a long time. Patterson was working in advertising then. I started out as a copywriter, right here, J. Walter Thompson. After Jane died, yeah. you kind of threw yourself into advertising. Yeah, that was,
12: I, I, a lot of
17: things for me changed when Jane died. I, uh, I don't know, I think life just became more important for me, my focus. And that's where I threw myself into this, and and really rose from a copywriter to, to CEO in, in a in hurry, in, in, in a years. couple of
22: years, yeah. Among his successful ad campaigns, this one.
1: Um.
22: Eventually, he returned to writing.
17: I actually sat down and said, "I'm going to try to write a best-selling novel," and also recognizing where my weaknesses were and trying to avoid those. Mm-hmm. Um, Who were your weaknesses? My weakness is is I'm not a great stylist. Mm -hmm. Um, So keep it simple. And that's when I wrote Along Came a Spider.
22: Published in 1993, it was Patterson's breakout book. The novel introduced African-American detective Alex Cross and spawned a franchise that's produced 20 sequels and three films. Well,
14: he's,
4: he's like a spider. I happen to like spiders.
22: A few years later, Patterson started dating Sue Lee, an art director at the ad agency. They married in 1997.
17: I mean, Serena and Jack have been together since they were like one.
22: And that. have an 18-year-old son, Jack, whose initial reluctance to read helped inspire Patterson's push into young adult fiction.
17: Reading Funny TV is like getting hit with a cream pie. Your kids will love it. Back there is the kids section, which is another big deal with me. The 69-year-old writer has
22: become an outspoken advocate for child literacy. This one's going to be a movie in October. Donating half a million books to students. If we don't get our
17: kids reading, especially at-risk kids, I mean, how going to get through high school?
22: In his 20,000-square-foot Palm Beach house, James Patterson, Inc., is still working overtime. What's your routine?
17: Well, the routine is seven days a week. I mean, I'm basically in my office 5.36 in the morning. Uh-huh.
22: And up in that office, his imagination never rests. But I would think at a certain point, you would say,
17: why write one more? Because I love doing it. I mean, it's like why go to another movie or why eat another chocolate? I mean, my life, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow because I don't know what I'm going to make up. I don't know what I'm going to create.
3: The healing power of Muhammad Ali, next. Muhammad Ali touched the lives of many people in very personal ways. Among them, author, PBS host, and Sunday morning contributor, Tavis Smiley.
2: The defining moment of my life occurred when I was just 12 years old. I was falsely accused of something by the minister at my church and my father, who was both a deacon and a church trustee, in a momentary lapse of judgment beat me so severely that it put me in the hospital. That incident essentially ruined my relationship with my dad during those all-important adolescent years and we were basically estranged well into my adulthood. The great freedom fighter Frederick Douglass once said, it's easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken men. I was a broken man, struggling emotionally for years with how to repair the relationship with my father, whom I'd long since forgiven, but with whom I still didn't have a loving relationship. <laughs> Enter Muhammad Ali. As a child, my fondest memories of the good times with my dad all revolved around watching those historic Ali fights on TV. My dad loved Ali not just for his mastery of the sweet science in the ring, but for his courage to be a truth-teller. And I've never seen a man so willing to speak the truth, no matter the consequences. And so Ali, the freest black man I'd ever seen, became my hero too. The champ is here. I could never have imagined that I'd grow up to meet the champ, interview him many times, hang out with him, and eventually be honored to call him a friend and a brother. But sometimes your life Exceeds your dreams. I hosted an event in his honor one night and decided to surprise my dad by taking him As my guest I reserved the seat for my dad at the head table Right next to Ali. I guess you can imagine how this story ends I've only seen my dad cry twice in his life once when his father died and the night he met Muhammad Ali Ali was always the people's champ his lifetime of giving to others is what he'd be most remembered for He felt that his love and service to everyday people was the rent he paid for the space he occupied. And as such, he always made you feel like you were the most important person in the room. He certainly made my dad feel that way. And every time I saw the champ from that night forward, I gave him a big hug and thanked him profusely for being the healing that helped to repair my relationship with my father. In a year where we've lost some good ones, The world is especially going to miss the greatest of all time. We all owe Muhammad Ali a debt that we can never repay. I know I do. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join
3: us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.
13: Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's recipe for adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Good Night Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of story time with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen.